hat doffed. Uh, I don't know if there's a preaching hat. Um, certainly certain traditions have one. Or maybe they don't have a hat, like a head covering. I don't know. Uh, I grew up Baptist, so you're lucky if we even wore a jacket. Um, I think I want to share something personal really quick and then ask for your prayer before we get started with the sermon. So I was really, I'm really excited about this. Uh, they let me share on All Saints Day observed um, most years, and it's just a thrill. I love storytelling. I love sharing uh, about the stories of the church and the particular twist on the topic. I'm excited about that too, um, but I think this sermon is very for me um, to the point where last night I had um, unexpectedly, because I was feeling great <laughs> about it, a bunch of nightmares, um, all very much in the tone of the sermon uh, about the thing that, that, that you'll you have to wait and listen to the sermon to find out, but um, just about not being ready, about not getting it right, things like that. There, I, I told you you can go home. Um, so, yeah, I've had some good prayer already this morning, um, but, but can we just pray together and help me get ready, help you get ready, and then we'll, we'll share this story? Does that sound okay? Um, we can pray quietly unless you feel like really, like it's got to come out of you. But uh, God, uh, hear our prayer as we um, prepare to share it together. Amen. I hope you're done. You can keep praying if you want. There's no rules against it. In fact, some people say you're supposed to pray without ceasing. I don't know. Um, okay. So Halloween, as mentioned, is coming up. Um, Halloween, it's a, a contraction of All Hallows' Eve. You know, one of those really natural All Hallows' Eve, Halloween. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe if you've had a few ciders, it makes more sense. Um, but that's what this is. Um, and it's a, a part of a, a tr tritium, um, which is a three-day observance. There's a bunch of these in the church where, like, a bunch of holy days go together. Uh, Halloween, All Hallows' Eve is a part of one that has All, All Hallows' Eve, All Saints' Day, and All Souls' Day. Um, and it starts on, on Halloween. So <laughs> the 31st is All, All Halloween. Um, November 1st is All Saints' Day. All Souls' Day is the second. Um, but, you know, we don't usually have church on Wednesday, so... We're observing All Saints Day today here um, at the church. Um, some people from some backgrounds, like more Protestant, for me, like I was taught that growing up that saints, that's like basically idol worship. It's like observing that they even exist. So you want to, yeah, there's one, a graven image right here on the stage. Um, but the word, it just comes from a word that means set apart or called out. Um, which we are. We're set apart. We're called out when we ally ourselves with God. Um, now, certainly within certain traditions and threads of the church, there have been special procedures and rules for people that get to be like capital S saints. Um, I think here we, we will and have been more generous with who we call a saint. Uh, we, I, we talked about Saint Corey Tenboom once, not officially canonized. Uh, the, one of my Catholics is glaring at me right now. Eh? Um, 
But in general, when we talk about saints here in this context, we talk about All Saints Day, we're just talking about uh, our brothers and sisters who went before us, who set an example for us, and we give thanks for their lives, and we try to learn from their example. And this concept of looking at the saints this way, it's scriptural as well. Um, Paul, in Hebrews 11, goes on about this. And this is a, I love this passage. I read it every time because it's so powerful. Uh, Hebrews 11, Paul says, And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released, so they may gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Amen? Paul could preach a little bit, at least in letter writing. So in All Saints Day, we give thanks for the saints and we observe them. And I wanted to, as has been suggested, talk about a particular favorite saint of mine, St. Francis of Assisi. Um, I feel bad. Adrian promised I was going to tell all about his life, but my, I was thinking people know a lot about St. Francis. I'm kind of curious. Who knows anything about St. Francis? Any yeah, a little, shout something out about St. Francis, a story or an attribute, something about St. Francis that you know. Animals, that's great. Uh, St. Francis was famously uh, a, a lover of nature, animals, um, and there's lots of stories where, like, animals came to him or he spoke to them, and, and there was a, a peaceful relationship. What else? He was involved in, uh, in, in both, do you say both sides? Um, yeah, there was uh, the Crusades. Is a, uh, there were many of them. A terrible, bloody period in, in the history of the church, um, where, uh, in, to not put too fine a point on it, in my point of view, uh, Christians engaged in uh, terrible slaughter of people uh, in the Holy Land and, and kind of wherever they felt like along the way as well. And uh, Francis was involved in various ways. Um, uh, with, with that process, including tr tr trying to, to bring peace, crossing the battle lines to speak to a sultan, uh, famously. Um, a controversial story, but um, a fascinating one. And I think it marks Francis's willingness to try things that were crazy <laughs> sometimes and, uh, and to swing for the fences and, and make, make mistakes and, uh, and that too. What else? Yes, there are a number of, of famous prayers uh, when I was speaking to Jesse, she, that was the first thing that came to mind uh, for her um, that, that come from St. Francis. 
Was he, he was born wealthy. I'm going to even talk about that one. Well done. Uh, yeah. So he's a little bit known. And if you didn't know, you've definitely seen a statue like this one or maybe one with, like lots of times he's got his hands out. Lots of times there's a bird in the statue as well. Like just, he's like, San Francisco is in like 50% of gardens in America probably, I would guess. Like he's out there. And like never very big. He doesn't get to be tall. Like he, this is sort of an average, maybe like twice that big uh, for whatever reason. Um, yeah, famous and, and well-known. Um, and I, a remarkable reformer of the church of his time and culture of his time, and he remains for us today uh, a, a powerful guide for living like Jesus, which is all he was ever really trying to do was like, hey, what if we took this scripture stuff real seriously about what it means to live like Jesus and try to do it, even in, in crazy ways? He, um, he embraced poverty is a famous thing about Francis and Franciscans. He made a vow of poverty not to have uh, possessions or, or to gather wealth, something that his followers have struggled with over the years. Um, and uh, he loved people of all kinds. Some of this, I think, was a gift that God put in him directly, even in the stories of his youth when he was a wastrel. More on that later. Um, he was still very generous to everyone. Um, and he loved to, to tell God's story, to share the good news of the kingdom of God and to tell people about Jesus. And, and that's really the root, I think, of what grew into doing what he did for the church. But I want to talk about the beginning kind of pre-ministry and like his calling because it's my very favorite story. It's a weird, it's not like one of the coolest stories that you hear about St. Francis. It's one of the the dumbest ones, and I love it the best. It's my favorite. Somehow connects to me. Uh, so, um, St. Francis was born wealthy. Um, his father was a cloth merchant. There's some thought that his mother may have been like minor nobility. So he was both uh, wealthy and powerful in the sense of resource, but also in some connections without being a fully noble family, which at the time would have put him like 100% out of touch with the common person. So he's still connected to, um, to the people, but from a position of significant resource and power. Um, he was born Giovanni di Petro di Bernardone, very Italian. Uh, and you, I think you get bonus names based on how much money you have. Um, he, so yeah, what, what Francis did growing up with his privilege, it's not going to be shocking to you, it's what many of us do when we grow up with significant power and privilege. He was a party guy. Uh, he loved to, to, to drink and sing and uh, cavort with his friends. Um, he, he wore outlandish clothing. I think, in all honesty, I was, if he was born today, he would be like an influencer, like a particularly irritating like trust fund influencer just out there like, Look at me, I'm crazy. Um, and just like doing like pranks and stunts and having a good time. Although, well, without hopefully the cruelty we see of some influencers. Um, and that was what he, he did with his friends in his life uh, in Assisi. Had a good time uh, partying. But by the time um, he was 20, I think already some of the joy of that lifestyle was beginning to fade. 
um, a conflict arose, arose with Perugia, uh, and, and neighboring city, a little battle was going to be happening. And so he has decided to change from party guy to honorable knight. And so he kitted up and marched into battle and was immediately captured uh, <laughs> and lived in captivity um, for some time, um, about a year during that time, uh, experiencing some privations, some struggle, <laughs> some lack of resources for the first time. He became very ill during this time uh, as well, and, and some suggest that some of the illness and things that set in in his body then carried with him throughout the rest of his life. Uh, after he was released and returned, he took a swing at getting back to the, get, you know, get the band back together, try to have some fun. Didn't happen for him. Wasn't fun anymore. Um, and uh, he got sick again. Some of the illness stuck with him. And he becomes deeply depressed. He has tried pleasure. He has tried chivalry and glory. And he has not found much of anything. And he is disgusted with himself. He sees even in himself that there is a lack and something missing. And so he begins in his depression to try to find something. He begins walking through the countryside. He begins a pursuit of something within, a pursuit, I think, of God. And one day, he ends up at a little chapel, San Damiano. This is a, one of the many chapel that's doubt, d d d dot the hillsides in Italy. And it's in terrible disrepair. Nobody really goes there. It's not like a local church per se. It's just a little chapel. Uh, it's got a little priest. <laughs> Maybe a little bit good than that. And at the chapel, he's praying. He, he, he falls into a fervent prayer um, under a, a painted cross, and he hears the voice of God. And we know now this is like, this is like the big calling moment in all the stories. This is it. He's going to get the marching orders and change his life and be Super Francis. Uh, the, the, what he hears God say is, Francis, uh, in Italian, though, so, you know, <laughs> you guys translate. Francis, go and repair my house, which you can see is all being destroyed. And we know now for sure what God meant. Um, the church is in terrible shape at the time. This was something I, had, I learned about in graduate school that I didn't know about before, uh, I read the book, The Pope's Ceiling, which is about Michelangelo painting The Pope's Ceiling. You guys probably call it the Sistine Chapel. Um, but just learning about what the church was like uh, in hundreds of years of nothing that looks like the pursuit of God of the kingdom to me, what looks like the pursuit of physical territory, military might, wealth, power, is what you're seeing from the popes of the time. Terrible immoral behaviors. And this wasn't just at a, at a pope level, it was in the regional and local leadership of the church. What the church was about at this time was about power and control. And because this area of the world was under Christian control or Christendom, Christian power, um, 
It was just the prevailing political system. Um, I think that in Christendom, it's likely that a lot of the people, the general peasant in the field, had a genuine faith and a desire for God, and they're stuck with all they've got is what they've got in terms of what they've been taught by these priests and the power that they have, and they have no other example, but they're hungry for a more authentic expression of what's necessary. And so God's calling here, when he says, rebuild my church, it's falling apart. It's about the whole church of God. It's about all of it, at least in the European area. We may have had some more authentic flourishing in other parts of the world. Um, That's the call. And so that's the call, but what, what does Francis get? He's like, oh, I know just what to do. Rebuild the church? Great. He runs home, steals all of his dad's fabric, sells it, and gives all the money to the little chapel. What? Um, the, the priest, who is not an idiot, is like, no, I don't want your dad's stolen cloth money. What are you talking? You're behaving crazy. And so Francis is just like, oh, I'm just going to leave it here on a windowsill. I don't even know what's happening to it. Maybe I'll walk away. Maybe it's gone. I don't know. And Francis moves in and starts moving rocks around in a chapel. He starts to physically rebuild this one church he was in at the time. That's what he thinks God is talking about at the time. It's sweet, but it's not really getting it. Over time, by God's grace, and because Francis stays in conversation with God, and through a lot of travail, Francis gets it more and more. And the movement that grows out of the work that he does, does rebuild the church. Not by challenging face-to-face the structures of the church in a confrontational manner, but by providing an example to the side of what it looks like to live like Jesus, to live a life of poverty and love and care, and people respond because they're so hungry for it. And that changes the church of the time. Francis is hardly alone in not getting it right away. If we look, um, there's some great examples from our favorite idiots of Scripture, Jesus' disciples. John 4, the story here is Jesus is talking to the woman at the well. I don't have time to recap the whole story here. If you haven't read it, make a note. John 4, woman at the well, look it up later. If you haven't read it, I'm going to trust you. This is homework from church. It's very important. Um, So Jesus has been speaking and ministering to this woman at the well, a woman outside of his culture, a woman like who's got trouble in her life. It's amazing. It's a beautiful story. The disciples show up. And the first thing they do, here they is, their rabbi, their master, having a conversation with a woman. So they do the natural thing, and they ignore her. So they start by immediately not getting what's going on. They've missed the the boat entirely. Um, And they say, hey, Jesus, eat something, in verse 3. And Jesus says, excuse me, verse 31. And Jesus says in 32, I have food to eat that you don't know anything about. And the disciples... (laughs) Um, he's inviting them here into the same, he's having a conversation with a woman about living water, right? About food and drink that's beyond the mundane. He's inviting them, hey, you guys missed it. You ignored this woman. You guys, it's not great, but hey, let me invite you into the conversation here. And so he says, I have food you don't know about. 
And the disciples say, oh, could somebody, somebody brought him food, probably, in 30, 33. Like, oh, I guess somebody, somebody already delivered here. And gracious, Jesus is like, <clears throat> no, you, 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 you didn't get it again. And he graciously explains what he's trying to talk about, about the food of doing the will of the Father. And he gives them that very graciously, despite the fact that they don't get it. I think another one, this one might be one of my very favorites. Um, in Mark 8, we have another good disciple moment. So in Mark 8, we open with Jesus feeding 4,000 people Men plus women and children on top of that, okay, with seven loaves of bread, okay? This is a significant miracle. It's about feeding people. So we're right in the lunch frame of mind that the disciples like to live in, okay? And they, after they finish this, the preaching he's doing there, the feeding, Jesus gets in a boat with the disciples, and they make a park, point in Mark to say, and they didn't bring any bread on the boat. Um setting up what is to come. Uh, and so Jesus begins to teach. He says in 15, be careful, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. And so what do the disciples do? They're like, it's because we forgot the bread. That's why he's talking about yeast. Yeast of Herod, obviously, this is a lunchtime thing. <laughs> we forgot the bread. Um, I mean, I respect people that are always thinking about lunch. I, there's a resonance. I get it. And I love, I love how dumb it is in the face of a, a, a person who just fed thousands of people with seven loaves. It's like, we're pretty worried about bread. We don't, we don't. I think bread is, we got the bread. We can handle the bread. If there's anything we've recently demonstrated is we're good on bread. And again, graciously, forthrightly, Jesus explains to them, no, 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 guys, this is what I'm talking about. And he, he, he brings them in to the stories he's trying to get. And lots of times they don't get it, even when he does explain. There are stories, too, um, that I did not bring in today that are post-Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit helps us understand what is going on. <laughs> um, but even with the Holy Spirit, we still had to, like, send Peter extra special visions to, like, be cool with Gentiles, um, tensions with other uh, teachers in the church. We continue to struggle to get it. Um, and I think it's important in these stories to hear and to read Jesus' tone as gracious and kind, even when he's saying, are you still not getting it? Because he, he says words like that. But I think if we don't hear the patience, if we don't hear the love, we're going to miss out on who Jesus is and miss out on what it's like to, to be engaged with this. I love these stories about people close to God not getting it, because I worry about not getting it a lot. I always have. Um, someone I was speaking before the sermon uh, earlier, someone was like, perfectionism, and it's not about getting it perfect. <laughs> it's just about doing something that's right at all, and I think because I, I struggle with a tendency towards like like a fatalism. I maybe read too many chosen one books as a child, like, like that I'm doing the thing I'm supposed to be doing. Even if I do it badly and I'm doing it at all, I worry about it. Uh, and that's like last night, the dreams were about getting on the wrong train or missing a train or not getting off the train, like just not getting it. And I think that most of us 
are trying to get it. <laughs> um, I think even people that don't have a particular belief system or faith are still trying to get it in terms of living something of a good life, figuring out what it means to live a good life. Um, I think the struggle to get it for some people um, can lead to a couple of, of different behaviors. For some of us, the tension of struggling to get it, get it, get it, get it, get it, leads to giving up. There are plenty of people who coming from a church background, especially one that can be very rigid about what it means to get it and to live each moment perfectly, really, really want to give up. And they do, because holding that tension can be too much. Um, and I think you never really give up on trying to get it in some way. Maybe you give up on a church version of getting it, but then generally you might move towards um, a pleasure-seeking mode. Maybe like, well, okay, if this is all hooey, then I'll just have the, the most fun, the one with the most toys wins, like, and find often a lot of emptiness in that. If it's not a conscious choice towards pleasure, uh, oftentimes it can be avoidance. We find a pleasurable thing, a uh, sweet, sweet addiction. Uh, and I mean that very broadly, uh, from any substance you like to, to shopping or whatever it may be that distracts you from the fact that you don't even want to think about getting it. You're just doing this. It doesn't matter about getting it. For some people, um, losing some kind of faith-based way of, of getting it, maybe you try to find another system of faith. Maybe you find yourself pursuing uh, another kind of um, rigid system about, like, living in a very, very cruelty-free way, which is laudable. Um, but you may find yourself uh, elevating that in a way that isn't working for you either. Um, I think, uh, I, I don't think either of those paths lead to fulfillment. And I feel like there's plenty of evidence <laughs> in the world there. Francis, we know, lived a life-seeking pleasure and didn't find it, glory and chivalry and didn't find it. For me, I'm not necessarily one of those camps, although I dabble in pleasure-seeking on occasion. Um, for me, the fear of not getting it leads to paralysis. Um, I'll just not do anything until it's really clear what I'm supposed to do. Um, and maybe, like, whatever happens is what was supposed to happen. I remember once, uh, <laughs> when I was a kid, my dad <laughs> backed the car over my bike, and I just stood there and watched it happen, because it's like, well, you know, that's probably what was supposed to, that's what you get if you leave your bike in the driveway. I could have been like, please don't do that. <laughs> but I was like, I don't know what's right to do. Uh, that's pretty dumb, but, uh, you know. I think a lot of us get a little stuck waiting, waiting for the word. Uh, maybe there has even been something, and we're like, oh, I need to confirm that. It can be hard to, to move and to make choices and get really, really stuck. But I think that paralysis, if, if abandoning a concept of God and, and pursuing, like, pleasures or other codes is about not trusting, like, like 
just not thinking there's much to the God thing at all or the way. I think the paralysis thing is equally about a, a concept of a small God, of a stingy God, a God who will be mad if you tell him not to back over the bike, um, a God who doesn't have time for you or space for you, it doesn't have the resources. If you don't do things just right, you're going to ruin God's whole plan. And then what are we going to do? Well, that's just not God. That's just not how it is, friends. Let me tell you, yeah. Let me tell you about the God that I believe in. This is a God who is more than capable of taking the things that you do, the work that you do, and bringing it about over time and ways to a good end. You really can't mess things up beyond repair. It's not even an issue for God. This is a God who is more than patient with us taking time and messing things up. Even if we're going the wrong way, if we're scribbling on the walls, whatever it is that we're doing, he's got the time for that. He's got the patience for that. And with the journey, he can see many routes to good for us. And he's always walking with us and encouraging us to find some kind of good in the place that we find ourselves. It's never too late to do that. And I think, and I've talked about this before. I don't know if people take this seriously or not. I'm, I'm so serious about this. I think that God thinks that we are very cute. <laughs> I think that a root of understanding something, I think because it can be so hard to look at ourselves and esteem ourselves well, to love ourselves well, but most of us have a capacity to see a child and think, that's good. There's something good about a child. They're sweet. They're cute. Look at them bumbling around. It's hilarious. And I think that part of a journey for, I think, nearly all of us is accepting a childlike view as God sees us. Sweet little Carl, bumbling around, and that it really is take your kid to work day every day with God. A tiny two-year-old is who you are, bumbling around with God, and sometimes you're going to walk right off the edge of the stage. He's just going to catch you or pick you up if you fall. You're going to try to do something. You're going to do a bad job. He's going to fix it. It's going to be okay. Even when you break a thing, God has the resource and the patience to bring something good, to, to, to make good out of it. We are God's cute, cute, sweet little children. And I think if we can see yourself in that way, it be, can be the part of a journey towards seeing yourself as God sees you, in part. And I think that these stories are super cute. I love that God's like, Francis, reform the whole super messed up church. I'm going to walk with you. And he's like, got it. Steal some money, move some rocks. That's why that's my favorite Francis story. This is so dumb. No problem. Sleep in the dirt. Pile up some rocks. Um, and the disciples, like, like, I am teaching you the wisdom of actual God. You want lunch. I have got it. We will get you a submarine sandwich. No, guys, we've got bread. These are all... What's great about them is, in all cases, they're endearing tries. You see that they're not getting it, but they get it a little bit, right? Like, rebuild the church. Rebuilding this rock on this rock is rebuilding the church. It helps. It matters a little bit. It's not the whole thing, 
It's, not, it's in the right direction. God's, I fed, you know, 4,000 plus people. Disciples, sandwich. Like, it's, it's in the right direction. And I think in the same way, we don't have to worry so much if we're trying, trying to get it, about actually getting it. Because I think God can work with what we, we, we do. I think we need to worry less. At least this is for me. And join me if you like. Worry less, Carl, about getting it and get on with it. Just do what you understand to be what's in front of you that God has given you to do. And then listen. Stay in communication with God. Stay in a community of faith that can speak into your life. Stay deeply connected. I loved Jared's call to the scripture last week. This historical story of the saints of God, God speaking through the saints and together speaking to us. Stay in the scripture. Learn from what God is saying there. Stay in prayer, listening, because that way when you find out later you didn't get it or you didn't get all of it, you could do something different, and that'll be great. It'll be fine, because God is walking with us, and he is big and generous and loving in all of this. So, I want to return to the words of St. Paul. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let's, let's get rid of the perfectionism that stands in the way. Let's get rid of the worry that stands in the way. Let's get rid of, by God's grace, over time, the addictions that we get distracted with that get in the way, the sin that entangles. Let's cut away at these things so that we can run with perseverance the race marked out for us. And friends, unlike the track that some of you are on today or maybe like a cross-country trip, God marks a wide track. Like, there's a lot of narrow and wide stuff in Christianity, right? The, the narrow way. But what, what the, that stuff doesn't say is God will keep marking you back. He will be blazing a path for you. He will be cutting away for you. No matter where you've wandered off to, whether you've wandered for good or ill, the path will return. And it might even be a little different path because God can make something out of anything. You can never wander away from the race in a way that God can't bring you back to it. Today is always a great day to do it. And if you didn't have a good day today, tomorrow is great too. There's room. The race is marked. Let's stand. We're going to join in the community of the saints now um, in the Eucharist. Yeah, friends, we turn, turn towards the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper. We share together in this meal each week, participating in the meal that Jesus shared with his disciples. Looks like the worship team, Adrian, is in place. Uh, I invite the prayer ministers to come forward as well. We are here today because Jesus extends to us an invitation. Strangers and friends, believers and doubters, the certain and the curious. It's always in mixed company that Jesus gathers and invites to his table where, in bread and cup, he meets us. 
and through him, we who are different are joined together as one body. So come not because you understand, but because you are understood. Come not because of how you feel, but because God has food for you. Come not because you feel deserving, but because Jesus invites you and welcomes you just as you are. Scripture invites us to examine ourselves before coming to the table. We become aware of our faults so that we can receive grace in our time of need. We confess so we, that we can partner with God for our healing. And we've confessed together through the confession song.